Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, February 11th. We have a great show for you today. We have one of last year's Rattle Chapbook Prize winners, Christina Olson, on the line. She's going to be talking about The Last Mastodon and her other books. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time because um, Christina has sort of a science background and interest, and so do I. So she's a poet that I'm very interested in talking to uh, about a lot of things. So, so looking forward to that. As always, we like to do a little bit of a warm-up poem as people trickle in so we get the full audience for Christina. And uh, I'm going to do, I picked another, I hit the random button again. And this time what came up was uh, a poem by Thadra Sheridan. I know a couple weeks ago we did a poem by Patricia Smith, another slam poet. And um, this is Thadra Sheridan. Thadra Sheridan is a poet, essayist, columnist, teacher, and performer from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her work has been featured on the final episode of HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, Minnesota Public Radio, Upworthy Button Poetry, and venues across the country, including San Quentin Prison, where she scored serious points talking about her terrible taste in men. And that's her bio from her website, which is thadrasheridan.com. That's T-H-A-D-R-A Sheridan.com. Uh, check her out there. And uh, But here she is. This is a poem from issue number 27, This is After the Bowling Stopped. Last night, this guy played guitar on stage, and it made me think of you, because you play guitar on stage. So I spent the next 15 minutes running a mental slideshow. Los Angeles, you give me half of your egg salad sandwich. Indianapolis, you grab me, because the smell of gasoline on my fingers turns you on. Chicago, we play Ferris Bueller and follow a kid's tour group at the Institute of Arts, Ashland. You bowl five strikes in a row, etc., etc. I find this still happens a lot. Someone's wearing shoes, so I think of you, because you wear shoes. You drink beverages. You breathe air. You can see how this might be a problem. Sometimes I just blurt your name out loud in my apartment for no reason like a Tourette's outburst and I'm supposed to write this poem about you because I keep saying I'm a poet and I've been trying for the three years since you stopped bowling in my presence but it keeps coming out like I hate you, I hate you, I wish I'd never agreed to date you or the day you left. The sun set for the last time. The trees wilted and happy little creatures ceased to scurry. Or my heart is a block of frozen, petrified, solid, really hard ice without you. Or I don't need you. Never did. I can open my own pickle jaws, motherfucker. Oh, I can write volumes about every little one-night stand, pointless encounter, waste of saliva I've tried to replace you. But you... You're drying up the ink in all my favorite pens. You're hiding all my journals and shorting out my keyboard. You are the quintessential cock block. If I had a cock, you are the ultimate writer's block. If... No, wait, that one works. The point is, I know you can eat a whole egg salad sandwich, but I appreciate the gesture. And that stretch of 9094 from Chicago to Rockford has never been the same since I drove it home from the end of time. And when you stayed over this past spring, you slept on the couch, took a shower, and left. But it took me three days to take your towel out of the bathroom, and five more to wash it. I find I can't really write about something till I have a little distance perspective, and you're still mashed up against me like a Siamese twin. And the kicker is, I can't even say I want you back. 
You were all shades of fiasco. I was only on your mind if I was waving my arms in front of you and having sex with you. Well, I suspect you wouldn't have known the difference if I had been inflatable. And you only gave me the sandwich because you were being such an asshole. So if you asked, would I take you back? Yeah, I totally would. And that pisses me off. But if I was with you right now, I'd be sitting in some hotel room in New York getting my ass kicked at Scrabble or pitching a makeshift baseball game in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And my debt would be twice as ridiculous and I'd weigh a hundred pounds because you supplement eating and sleeping and not in any good way. But I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be running my stupid life. You are the rock star me I am too impatient to wait for, and you've got nothing to do with anything. Most of my friends don't even know what you look like, so you're all mine. And a terrible kisser. And a really sore loser. And I suspect you'll litter my life with unfinished pages about the empty spaces you left in my apartment for years to come. And tonight, when someone asks to borrow a guitar pick, or uses the words or the I'll think of you snapshot something somewhere away from here and today not much I can really do about that just thought I'd mention it because it was on my mind and that was Thadra Sheridan with her poem after the bowling stop that pickle jar line cracks me up every time I can't help it sorry <laughs> um, okay so today's featured poet um, as I mentioned before, she's a uh, winner of the 2000, what is it, 19 Ronald Chapbook Prize, one of uh, one of three, and um, I just love this book. It's it's a it's a topic I've always found so fascinating. Uh, her book is The Last Mastodon. She's also the author of other poetry collections, Terminal Human Velocity, and Before I Come Came Home Naked, as well as the Chapbook's Weird Science and Rook and the Me, a Law and Order inspired narrative. Uh, her poetry and nonfiction appeared all over the place. She's a recipient of fellowships from the Vermont Studio Arts Center um, and Willapa Bay Air. She teaches creative writing at Georgia Southern University and tweets as Olson Quest. You can find her online at the Drevlov hyphen Olson Show.com. That's the D R E V L O W hyphen Olson O L S O N Show.com. And uh, here she is. Um, Christina Olson. Hi, Christina. How are you doing? I'm oh. good. Um, so do you want to start out with a, reading a poem from the book, maybe, or whatever you want? Yeah. And say the page I, number so I can get to it really quick, too. Okay. So I'm going to read a bunch of stuff from The Last Mastodon, and it, this is the very first poem. It starts on page nine. And um, I won't talk a lot because I know we're going to talk, but I will say just kind of by way of grounding everyone. Um, so this book is... Um, written after I spent time at the Western Science Center, which is in Hemet, California. So, um, what is that, like an hour and a half inland from L.A.? Somewhere there. Yeah, about an hour and a half, yeah. Yeah, big mountains, um, dry, dry, dry. Um, and so I have a friend who's a paleontologist, and she studies mastodons. Um, and over the years, as we were talking, she kind of, you know, kidding not kidding said oh you know we should we should really work together you should write a a series of poems about mastodons and I was like oh yeah sure and then one day she came to me and she was like no for real though like we're doing the conference so I put you down as the poet in residence and I was like all right I have no idea what that means um and I knew just enough about mastodons like I knew that they they weren't mammoths right um and so one of the very first things I learned um is 
aside from size, the way that you can tell them apart is the teeth. And so this poem is about that. And it's also about where uh, the word mastodon actually comes from. So this poem is called Catalog of Damages. And it's the title poem, um, or I'm sorry, it's the first poem in the book. And I think it covers a lot of what the book does. Catalog of Damages. All these years, not knowing the difference between mammoth and mastodon, just another human so proud in her indifference. It's in the teeth. Mammoth teeth resemble the rubber sole of snow boot. Mastodon teeth, jagged mountains turned to granite after all these years. Jefferson thought the West still crawled with mastodons, sent Lewis and Clark to thin the herd. All morning, I've tried to reconcile our ambition with the misery it brings, what we set out to do, and what disaster ensues. Eleven feet high at the shoulder, Max is the largest mastodon in the West. Jefferson owned Sally Hemings. I never could make small talk with my father. I told you this was a catalog of damages. Oh, God, the mouth is such a weapon. Once again, that was Catalog of Damages from um, Christina Olson's chat book, which every subscriber of Rattle has, uh, The Last Mastodon. Uh, Christina, let me uh, ask about the research that went into this book, because um, I know you, you know, you just explained how you had that internship um, or yeah. fellowship or what it, whatever it was called at uh, the Western Science Center. Um, but but how did you know? I never knew that uh, Jefferson was interested in mastodons. Where did you pick that up? That's a great question. Um, I'd like to say something better than Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> definitely confirmed by Wikipedia. You know, I have this notebook of, that was just a lot of um, kind of the flotsam and the jetsam of the things I heard. So I was with these paleontologists for three days, and they were super jazzed to be together because this is a, a mild exaggeration, but there's only like 20 of them that study mastodons. Um and you kind of get the impression talking to them that like mammoths are those sexy ones, right? And that it's not like all that common for them to just have like this mastodon fo focus conference. Um, so they were really excited. And so a lot of things kind of came up. Um, but yeah, Jefferson definitely came up um, in as much as, you know, he was really, he really, really wanted to prove to Europe that the U.S. was like bigger and stronger and younger. And so he just kind of like broadly announced that there were mastodons out West and Lewis and Clark were definitely going to bring them back alive, mm -hmm. um, which is like a bold statement. Totally inaccurate as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, you know, but he was a complicated man, which is what the poem is also about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but he also, um, uh, he got mad once and just sent a moose to Europe to prove to them that the U.S. was better. <laughs> Um, you know, so like from an animal rights perspective, that's super problematic, but I love the idea of just being like, you know what, send him a moose and that will like settle it, you know? And also he wasn't even thinking because the Irish elk used to live over in, in Europe and was much larger than a moose, but you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you, like you tie so many things? I, I feel like, I don't know if it's a phrase that I sort of used myself but but it's a book about sort of human human sense of ownership too at the same time yeah. and um and so so jefferson's you know as a slave owner um and yeah. and you know the sense of like the united states owning everything within our boundaries and eventually owning the world is such an important part of that part of the subject 
Um, how did you like figure out how everything tied together? Like wh how, what was that process like? Um, so I have to shout out to the lyric essay here <laughs> because if you had asked me 10 years ago, this would have been a, a really different book. Um, but then in, in more recent years, I got really into, you know, that, that subgenre of creative nonfiction that's about the lyric essay and just tying together things. Um, and not just tying them together, but I think being really comfortable as a writer, not having all the answers, right? Like working in juxtaposition and putting together these things and, and having, um, inference rather than thesis be the thing that's guiding a piece of writing um and so that's a fancy answer i mean the short answer is that i i just couldn't stop myself because when i started writing the the book and i started looking at my notes everything like all the associations started started coming in and so jefferson was an easy one um because yeah on the one hand you have this this general gentleman like naturalist who did a lot of really amazing things as far as um plantings right and and horticulture but then also own people I and mean, whenever we talk about jefferson we say like oh he planted 60 species of fig trees but like jefferson didn't plant the trees man like mm -hmm. the people he owned did um and so i you know you i you can't talk about jefferson without talking about that part and about that complexity um and and problem um and um, the other part that the other kind of, I think, third thread to the book is the relationship that I have with my dad. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, it's biographical. I'm, I'm, I'm totally comfortable admitting that. Um, my dad was a geologist. He's, uh, he's retired now, but I would not have ever been interested in fossils if it hadn't been for growing up in a house, you know, with someone who was interested in geology and paleontology. And so we have this really complicated relationship like, right now and we don't speak a lot but I, I couldn't stand in a museum and not think of him. Mm -hmm. And so this poem was the first one I wrote. Um, and I think at the time I was just kind of associating these three things. And then I kind of stepped back from the draft and I was like, Oh no, never mind. Like this is what they all have in common. Right. Like the Mastodon at the Western science center, his name is Max. Cause he's big. Um, he's, he's dead because another male punched him with a tusk and he died. Right. And so I just started thinking about the mouth and all the, all the ugliness and the beauty that mouths contain. Mm -hmm. It's just so interesting to me because, because what, what makes me interested in poetry as somebody who sort of looks at it from a science perspective too, actually, is the way that we make these leaps of sort of associative, um, you know, like, like there's a way that, that the poetic brain sees the world holistically in a way that science doesn't. And so it's like a key to scientific understanding um, in a really interesting way, which is what always got me interested in poetry. And like comparing Mastodon's um, and their extinction <laughs> to slavery and to relationships with fathers is something that like you would never think to do. Um, and yeah. And I have to give a shout out to you because like this was a manuscript that I finished and I was like, I love this book, right? Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen to this book in the world. Like this is a book that a press is either going to love or they're just going to be like, what? what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, there isn't going to be a lot of in between on this one. And uh, yeah, but I remember the first conversation that you and I had and you were like, this book is 
you didn't say it quite this way, but you were like, this book is amazing and kind of bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. It was, I just, it was one of those ones I read it and I was like, yeah, that's one of the winners. And then I just put it yeah. aside and, you know, I should say I figured... amazing. I didn't mean like, pay you a compliment. Pay you a compliment. But it was more like I, we were not expecting this manuscript, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's what I'm always looking for is something that I have no idea to expect or what I'm looking for. So it was really cool to, cool to read. Yeah. But um, that's the best picking up a book right where you're like i don't know what journey mm-hmm. i'm so glad i did right yeah you know? yeah that's exactly why i just should say that that's why i think the model of having chapbooks with the issues that was my goal because because you subscribe you have no idea what you're going to get and <laughs> i really think that um that, that that books should work on this model these small press books i really wish yeah. presses would have a subscription and then you have no idea what you're going to get and it's like a curated selection of books i think that would be so fun to do. I think yeah. Tupelo does that a little bit. Uh, but I hope more people start to do that because it, it'd be a cool, you know, because nobody expected a book like this and then they got it. And um, and, and the reviews, everybody, all our subscribers who wrote to me said they loved it. So um, it's really cool to see that it worked. Yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Let me say before we continue that if you have any questions for Christina, I'm watching the YouTube chat window. If you want to leave a question, I'll pass it along. But Christina, do you want to read two more poems maybe? Yeah, um, I will read a longer one. It's uh, the third one. Uh, it's slightly longer. And then um, I'll follow it up with a, a little bit of a shorter one. So I'll jump to page 11 for those of you following along at home. <laughs> um, I'm still not sure if it's a prose poem or a flash creative nonfiction essay, but it is about the things we were just talking about. It's called Who Gets to Be a Fossil? Um, and I take the title from this display. I think that was meant for children at the Western Science Center. But I liked the phrase, who gets to be a fossil? So I stole it. Who gets to be a fossil? Max the Mastodon gets to be a fossil. Thomas Jefferson gets to be a fossil. Max lived 14,000 years ago in a scrub forest filled with lizards and quail. Thomas Jefferson built Monticello and signed the Declaration of Independence. Sometimes masks use his tusks to fight other mastodons, and sometimes his tusk would pierce the skull of the other male he was fighting, and that mastodon died. I Google, where is Thomas Jefferson buried? And the answer is on a website run by a woman named Carol, who posts pictures of the graves of Thomas Jefferson and his family. Carol writes, Something of a disappointment was the fact that the locked wrought iron fence prohibited visitors from paying homage to the great man and his family. Max kept wandering through the California scrub until he died, and his bones turned hard, and then some men in hats found them when they were digging a dam. Carol's website also features a recipe for Carol's low-fat peanut soup and something called crockpot dinner of beans, kale, and sausage for three. Jefferson fathered six children with his slave, Sally Hemings. Four lived to adulthood, which means Sally would need to make dinner of beans and kale times one and one-third to feed their children. The mastodons are dead, and you and I will never see them. Carol writes, Somehow it felt as if we were being banned from his world. Sally Hemings may have lived in a room in Monticello's South Dependencies, a wing of the mansion accessible to the main house through a covered passageway. Carol writes, Thomas Jefferson belongs to his United States of America for time eternal. Sally Hemings belonged to Jefferson for time eternal, or until he died. Max the Mastodon belongs to the Western Science Center in Hemet, California, and people paid to look at him because he is a very impressive mastodon fossil, the biggest found west of the Mississippi River. 
Thomas Jefferson is buried in Monticello, behind a wrought iron fence that prevents unwanted visitors. Sally Hemings was buried in a site in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia, which is now covered by the parking lot of the Hampton Inn on West Main Street. And then um, I'll flip to uh, the very next poem in the book is, is, there's another mastodon at Western Science Center, and its name is Little Stevie. And so this is a poem for Little Stevie. It's called Wake Up Little Stevie. In another dimension, the mastodons are still alive, their teeth not yet white marble, hard as a Venus's breast. And in another dimension, the ocean has not yet receded like a hairline, and the freeway does not yet hold California together like sutures. And the water in Diamond Valley Lake sparkles like nothing, because there is no water, there is no lake. And the mastodons are not hardening in their muddy graves. They are instead pissing and fighting and breathing, like you did this morning. And in another dimension, the great tusks are not slumbering tar, waiting out of the black rot. And in another dimension, you are little Stevie, lumbering in the scrub. And you are not thinking about death, but rather dinner. And in another dimension, you are alive. You are alive, not dead. No, never dead. And that was Wake Up Little Stevie from The Last Mastodon. Um, now, Christian, this is the, the segment of the... Uh, of the episode where I just want to geek out a little bit because I've been okay. obsessed with uh, with mastodons and their extinction um, since I was a kid. Um, okay, okay, okay. And I don't, I don't want. To, I know you have friends who are paleontologists, right? I don't want to offend <laughs> anybody, but I've always felt like the overkill hypothesis was the most ridiculous hypothesis <laughs> in science ever, ever like recorded. <laughs> I uh, just to, to say. I mean, yeah, seriously. So, um, so I uh, just to tell you the background. I when I was in uh, college I, or high school, I took the ACT test. I don't know if they still do that, but it's like a science-oriented version of the SAT. And one of the things was science comprehension. I knew nothing about mastodons at the time, um, <laughs> but uh, the the little article we had to do for reading comprehension was about um, the overkill hypothesis. It was like some article from Nature, and we had to answer the questions. And I just remember sitting there thinking, that is the most absurd thing. I've ever heard that um, that humans could, you know, overhunt. I mean, just just the, by the numbers, you know, there were like a, a million humans in the world, um, and there were uh, and and most of them were in you know Africa and like the Fertile Crescent area, maybe like fifty to one hundred thousand North America if you're generous to the Clovis people, yeah. and there were like three hundred thousand mastodons and mammoths and then all the other animals that were went extinct too the saber-toothed tigers the ground sloths which you talk about here the camelops um <laughs> the idea that they hunted out that the the mastodons just strikes me as like just insane i don't i don't buy it for a second ultimate human hubris <laughs> right he's like oh we did that we're yeah. actually kind of a big deal <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know i feel like it's a combination of like the the naturalistic fallacy, like everything was great before humans screwed it up. Yeah. And then also yeah. there's the whole uh, problem with um, gradualism as a, yeah. as a response to um, like creationism and how like original geologists and paleontologists yeah. were all like religious. And so everybody didn't want to be religious. So they sort of said nothing can happen suddenly. But it seems so clear that there was some kind of catastrophe back then. And and this is a long rambling introduction. But so I went no. to this I went to the San Diego Zoo about 10 years ago, <laughs> right? 
And there was a uh, there's a little uh, section in the San Diego Zoo that says that um, at the time we went ten years ago, it said um, you know the mastodons and saber tigers were wiped out by a comet. And I was like, whoa, so there you go. Like, they, they sort of changed their mind. I went back again two years later, and it was gone. <laughs> so Wait, never mind. Uh, exactly. So, so no what, one exhibit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so what do the Mastodon paleontologists say wiped oh. out the... Because uh, I haven't, like, followed it that closely, but I'd like to know. Like, what do they say now? <laughs> uh, climate change? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, which we actually probably didn't cause back then, right? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, you know, I had mentioned earlier that my dad was a... Uh, he was a paleontologist slash geologist. Like, he ended up working in geology, but, you know, we had a house full of fossils. And um, so one of the one of the things that I got from, from him is, uh, you know, when I was a little kid in the 80s, I got a series of books by Roy Chapman Andrews that had been my father's, and they're from the early 50s. And it's, it's how I got into all this stuff. Like, there's this book called All About Strange Creatures of the Past, and it's awesome, and it shows, like, you know, uh, Stone Age people trapping woolly rhinoceroses in a pit and then throwing boulders on them. And, uh, like, one of the great disappointments of life is you go to, like, a museum, and you're like, none of this is right. Like, that book was... <laughs> That book is seriously overdue for an update. <laughs> um, and actually, one of my favorite museums in the world for two reasons is I love the Page Museum at La Brea because I love, obviously, that it's a tar pit. Um, but I also love that it's like a little janky. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, you just want to give them a bunch of money and be like, you need to fix some of these exhibits. <laughs> right? You know? So it was really fun when, when Katie and I were done out in Hamet. Yeah, we went to L.A. And like just everyone should go to a, like a museum with someone who is a specialist in that museum. You know, um, it's just, they were like, Oh yeah, no, that's not quite right anymore. <laughs> you know, or they're like, no, I wrote a paper about that. So th- that will be fixed one day. <laughs> you know, it's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. They just, I don't know. Things change and they ran out of stuff to eat. <laughs> Well, I I think uh, I think something huge happened back then, which is why it's an interesting Mm -hmm. topic, you know, because there's the um, and I think there's there's the comet, you know, the younger dryest impact hypothesis. I think maybe um, there was some kind of big solar flare that because a lot of the evidence would be very, very similar. But there's the black matte layer. um, And there's uh, where I think there's like 150 lakes that have a huge, thick black mac of of burned char at the same age, 12,900 years ago. Um, and I just think it's just amazing to imagine like being one of the Clovis people back then and like seeing something crazy and then, and then, uh, you know, coming out of your cave where you were hiding from like the lightning or the fire or whatever was happening. And then, uh, and then 12,000 years ago being blamed for the poor mastodons (laughs) (laughs) who, who, you know, you, you hunted a little bit, but there's no way you hunted those to extinction. No, no. And I think. And also all these things are just kind of like dying around you. And you're like, what a mess this is. I don't, I don't know how to clean this up. Like, you know, megafauna is, is mega for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like those are big, messy corpses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you ever played Oregon Trail, I'm going somewhere with this, okay. I promise. Like if you ever played Oregon Trail computer game and you went out and shot bison and it was like, you got 256 pounds of meat, but you could only carry eight back to the wagon. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, cool. I guess that's just going to rot in a field. Like, you know, so... <laughs> 
Yeah, but that was yeah. I mean, it was that was actually one of the the, the things that I totally geeked mm-hmm. out on is like, you know, like the paleontologists were there to do work, right? But like they were super friendly and they were super. I mean, they just. It's like anyone who's into a subject. They just want you to be into the subject, right? And I um, would say things, but then also, like, very carefully be like, you can you can correct me if that's not right. You know, like, I'm getting this, yeah, from, like, a, a Roy Chapman Andrews book from 1954 or whatever. Um, but, yeah, they were, like, so kind and fun to talk to. Like, they just wanted to sit around and talk about these things, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. I was just so jealous when I saw that you got to do that. <laughs> and, uh <laughs> Um, shout out to the Western Science Center. The people there are like legitimately the coolest. They are. They just opened their doors and they were so friendly and so great. And they just want everyone to have this really amazing experience and love mastodons as much as they do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you get a chance, everyone should go. <laughs> yeah. And another thing I think that would be really cool if we did more with poetry is like embed poets into places like that. I just think that would be really cool if we could find a way to do that more. Do you have any sort of advice or um you know ways of getting i know i I didn't know coming in that it was a friend of yours so you had a connection already but um but you've done a lot of books that are about uh, you know about science well you have one other book that's about a lot about science and um (laughs) do you think about doing that else you know otherwise and and what advice would you give for for poets who if they want to try to do something like that because it would be so cool i mean like like you imagine fiction writers like riding along with cops to learn about like the murder beat and stuff like that and why can't poets do a lot more of that i think it would be really cool if we did yeah we need to we need to embed more often um right i mean you know, what's interesting is that I think that they're, and I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally here, I can't like name names, but um, you see so many residencies that are for, you know, national parks, right, or natural spaces, and they want, you know, artists to come and, and make art about it or in it. And I love that, but um, this is a little bit, well, it's a total false binary, but in my head, I always think of that as nature and not like science. Mm-hmm. And to me... And I'm just saying this is the way I've come to navigate it. Um, Like science is the one where you you can't subvert the fact for the sake of the poem. Right. Mm -hmm. You like it. If I'm writing a poem about a bird that I saw when I was out on a walk, um, you know, which I do because I like looking at birds, they're tiny dinosaurs. Um, If I'm writing a poem that takes place in nature, it usually doesn't matter so much which bird. Right. But if I'm writing about a mastodon, I can't just start making stuff Mm -hmm. up because, first of all, there's at least 13 people on the planet who are going to be like, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, um, I I really like working in that confine. Right. I think that's the really cool thing is like when you set out to do a project like that, first of all, it's like like most people who do research are really excited to tell you about their research right i mean it's like any of us with any sort of like passion project like whatever you know a writer is working on if you get them at a cocktail party and it's like oh tell me about your manuscript like usually you're the one who has to like run away and hide in the coat closet uh-huh. right like like two hours have passed and you're like okay minimalism got it um, or whatever you know and so i i really i love um I love talking to scientists about what they're working on. Um, and then I think they love my clumsy, terrible metaphors where I'm like, so is it like this? And they're like, no, not at all. 
<laughs> so they, I'm, I'm sure they get like outreach or education out of it. <laughs> They're like, ah, let's fix that dum dum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's like I just did a class, or I just did a class visit at College of Charleston, where where there's a um, two female instructors and one's a scientist and one's a poet and they're doing a class where like the students work with both and I love that because it feels like such a a false construct that we we separate these things like here is literature and here's like stem Mm -hmm. right and so I think the more that people can just go out and spend the day you know in a science museum or fall down some rabbit hole on the internet or call the paleontologist i mean i think you know we're all better Mm -hmm. for it right i mean like we're all better for understanding how the world works and we're all better for talking to each other and pretending these things are um or not pretending that these things are so yeah yeah And, and there's a really interesting way that 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 art helps i think you know make these leaps like like the connections in your book or um um edgar Allan poe called it ratiocination and uh, I don't know if you know, yeah. he, he solved Olber's paradox about the, um, the fact that the, the night sky is not um, completely white with stars because there's a bounded visible universe. And he solved that like um, 60 years before Hubble or something like that in one of his poems. Um, it's a lot. And, 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 you know, in like Watson Crick, you know, the, the double helix came to them in a dream. And poetry is the stuff of dreams. And you can make these leaps through poetry. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. So it's really cool to find yeah. a poet that's actually embedded with scientists. It's really neat. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, so I, one of the things that I found so cool and rewarding is that um, I think just because I don't have, quote unquote, a brain for this stuff, you know what I mean? Like science is not a language that I speak fluently. I've had to teach myself like through trial and error. Um, there's still a lot of things that I do not even understand. Um, but I, I love it, right? I'm fascinated by it. Um, and I'm fascinated by the vocabulary that science bears on a poem, you know, this, this diction syntax that you would otherwise never get. Um, and I'm really fascinated by like the constraint, you know, um, these are all free verse poems. I guess one is a sonnet, but it kind of broke. <laughs> um, but you know, like scientific fact was a way for me to impor- impose form on a free verse poem. But, um, but I think, you know, the, the thing is too, is, is what I got from being around these paleontologists is I have to phrase this carefully because it makes it sound like they don't know what they're doing. They do, but they're so willing to experiment in a way that having not been around scientists, I did not anticipate. Right. I thought that they were, they were much more certain in what they were going to find. It was much more about proving a hypothesis than it mm-hmm. was gathering data. And, um, and so it was really rewarding to have these conversations with people, you know, cause it was like one of the questions that I actually wrote down and it makes its way into, I think the last piece in the book is, you know, one day we're at a conference table and someone just says like, well, in science, the question is always like, what does this mean? And I was like, well, how is that's not at all different than writing a poem. Right. And I've been a fool for all these years thinking that we went about this process totally differently because of course we did not. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? So it just, we just have different subjects. That's yeah, all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that's cool to hear too. Um, well, yeah. well, Kathleen Obama says this discussion about the false binary between art and science is refresh, refreshing. And I totally agree. Um, Good. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is. I wish, you know, my daughter for her class, um, you know, she's in, they have some kind of Excel, but they call it steam instead of STEM, which I really love. They throw the art yeah, in there, yeah. which is art, a good, yeah. good idea. Yeah. Um, well, do you yeah. want to read two more poems, maybe, and, and we'll keep moving along? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I was going to – yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Um, okay. I will do one of the poems that uh, – it's right in the middle, and it, it kind of gets away from the paleontology, although it still works its way in there. It's called Among the Bones. It's on page 20 in the chapbook. Among the Bones. Another year without my father. Another year spent bringing home bones from the wood. On my desk are dead things. A jar of the dog's white fur that the vet shaved to better see the last needle in. A porcupine skull rippled with sutures. Oyster halves. I spilled a glass of wine on the sand dollar, but the next morning, head throbbing, I bleached it back to normal. That first day shadowing the paleontologist, I was afraid to touch the rigid tooth of mammoth. I used two fingers like I would a baby who hasn't set. I kind of hurt it, said the paleontologist. She was measuring a tusk. It survived 2,000 years in the ground. Among the bones in that cool room, I felt the weight of something like geology. Drawers and cabinets filled with pieces of dead things. The jumble of bison teeth. Ancient horses so plentiful, no one bothers to catalog them. After the vet left the house, I plucked the puff of fur from the trash, put it in a jar. The advantage to dead things is that you cannot hurt them anymore. Instead, they hurt you over and over and over. The fur in its jar, the skull of a northern mockingbird, the impossible lightness of grief. And then I'll read... uh, there's a poem at the end that's a lot about uh, that similarity between art and science. So it's called A Story About Bones. It's on page 33. As it turns out, paleontology and poetry are not all that different. Both the ex- excavating of a shard here and there, an attempt to see what fits, the painstaking assembly of meaning from fragments. Maybe, if you get lucky, a tooth, pointed. And the people in their practical clothes and boots, sometimes even the same tiny brushes. And at the museum, I kept calling the collections stacks. So instead of poem, let's just say word cage. All morning I've been laboring at this. The way I regard something for hours. Come back, and in the new light over the desk, something shifted. Suddenly I see the tusk, the femur, or the weapon, how it fits in my hand like it's always been there, like I never put it down. Those were two more poems from The Last Mastodon. Um, if you don't have a copy of The Last Mastodon yet, you can buy it for just six bucks at rattle.com. Yeah, so, so pick it up, one. and that includes <laughs> shipping. Like We ship for free. We just want books out in the world. So, um, so pick up a copy if you don't have it. It's a great book. Uh, one of my favorite chat books that we've done, so I hope you enjoy it too. Um, Daniel here says, I'm an ecology major and poet. The hardest part about writing in my research subject is not becoming obscure with jargon, trying to draw yeah. out strangeness without alienating readers. So do you have any advice about that? That's, that's an interesting subject. It's so interesting that, that Daniel brings that up because, I, like I said, I think one of the, the great things that science does to a poem is it introduces this surprising syntax or diction, right? Um. I think that it's important to remember, like anything, like anything, 
um, if you lose the reader, like the poems, the poems dead in the water. Right. And jargon tends to be that, that specialized vocabulary. Um, and I'm an, I, I mean, I, I teach in a university, so academics are, are really bad about this, right? It's like we use this, this huge word when like the simpler word will do. Um, but I would say, you know, don't, don't cut all the jargon out of your poems because that's part of lo- the loveliness. You know, I love a poem that the speaker shows me vocabulary that I, I would never encounter in my day-to-day life, but contextually I know what they mean, right? Or, or they're just, they're deriving pleasure from the sounds. So on the one hand, it's like, don't alienate your reader with too much jargon. But on the other hand, like, trust your reader to follow you. Like, whatever you're digging in ecology, like, someone, someone's going to follow you, you know? Um, yeah, and in the age of uh, Wikipedia, you can look anything up. Like there's a yeah. there's a yeah. poem uh, in the current issue of Rattle, or maybe the fall issue of Rattle about scototropism, which um, sure. I had to look it up. And <laughs> once I did, it was really interesting the the metaphor that was being used there. Which uh, you'll have to go look that up. Uh, yeah. But scototropism is the is the way plants grow toward the sunlight. Um, so, so, you know, you can throw in words like that and assume people have, everybody in the world has a smartphone pretty much. Anybody can Google uh, one word, I think. So, yeah, you know, it's like in creative writing workshops, it's always like, take care of your reader. And I'm like, your reader carries a computer in their pocket. Like they'll be fine. You know, Mm -hmm. make the rest of the poem good enough that they want to come back. Right. They don't get lost, like looking up scototropism and then like fall down Buzzfeed. Right. But like. Quick Google, then they're back. That's how all of us learn vocabulary. <laughs> it's true, yeah. And and one of the pleasures of poetry is to learn, you know. So yeah. it's to it's to expand your map of the world and, and understand things that you didn't know before. So um, it's always good to get to learn. And I learned a lot from this book, which is really fun. And how cool that, like, when you learn it from a poem, you know what I mean? Because we have these really fixed ideas sometimes of what a poem is supposed to do, whatever that means. And so if you're able to come away from reading a book you know about plants and like it's also a book about poetry or a book in verse like that's that's a cool that's a cool book mm-hmm. you should write that book i want to read that book <laughs> <laughs> daniel go write this book <laughs> so, since you mentioned like what a poem should do let's let's start touching that topic like what do you think a poem <laughs> should do and why one of the things i looked up a couple interviews that you had um and one of the things you, you say is that you're a poet in a family of engineers yeah. and um so, so what is a poem, you know, what should a poem do and, and how does that apply to, to why you became a poet? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they're not all engineers. They're mostly engineers. It's just an easier sound by, uh, my dad was a failed engineer, geologist, you know, this, um, I would say that the only thing a poem should really do is just not take itself too seriously. And I, I don't mean that it can't be a serious poem, um, you know, I write about serious things all the time. As I said on Twitter, getting ready for this interview, I was like, "Uh oh, all my poems are about sad or dead things. <laughs> right. You know? Um, but I think that a, when a poem gets, when a poem, you know, stops thinking about the reader, then that's, that's the only time a poem really fails for me. When a poem is so self-important that it stopped thinking about me. Right. Um, yeah. So if a poem starts chasing its tail in a way, or a poem is is doing something really clever with language, but it's so p- proud of itself, <laughs> you know, these are these are hard things to articulate. And uh, 
but you know, there's a moment, right? There's a moment where you're reading a poem and you feel like there's this distance between you and the poem. And I don't mean the speaker. The speaker can hold you at arm's length. That's a choice the speaker gets to do. But when the poem feels like it's pushing you away, that's usually the only time that I kind of lose interest in the poem, mm-hmm. you know? Finishing it becomes more of an exercise in completion than like, I want to see where this goes, right? Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I think that's the only thing a poem really should do is it shouldn't, it shouldn't take itself so seriously that it totally neglects its readers, you know, mm-hmm. and not every poem is going to be for everyone. Right. So, I mean, it's okay. It's okay. If I read your, you know, the one poem and I'm like, Oh, all right. I got to come back to that one. Maybe I didn't, I, maybe I didn't encounter that poem at the right time in my life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think so many poems are just like these total, acts of generosity and like that's one of the really great things about reading right is like you see the the labor that somebody put in just so they could like i don't know reach across the universe and connect with you like that's the coolest strangest thing i could ever think of (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is acts of generosity i like that i never never thought of it that way but but that's true yeah yeah Yeah. and it's like letting yourself be vulnerable so you can communicate in it in a way yeah 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 even if that vulnerability manifests as like, here's my really prickly poem that wants nothing to do with you. That's pushing you away. Right. But like, you know, I think there's, you can tell the difference between a poem that's doing that intentionally versus one that is just maybe like showing off. Right. Or that it's, it's lost sight of itself. Mm-hmm. I think the poem very sentient in this conversation. I, I sound dangerously stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's the hard thing about writing is that you can, you can say all the, all the pithy things in the world, but like when, when it's working, you just know it's working. Right. Mm-hmm. So that sort of segue isn't something else I wanted to ask. There was an, an interesting quote in one of these things that I just read today. Uh, you said you need to practice craft, but you also have to respect the amount of time that process takes. I don't yeah. think a writer should be project driven. I think they should be process driven. Process takes time. Craft takes time. So could you, could you explain a little bit just what you mean by by craft versus process and, and well, what you were getting at there? It's an interesting sort of distinction. Yeah, I'm just big on process. I think it's because I was just was but like I was a total perfectionist as a kid which is a really great way to just grow up like anxious (laughs) about everything um but I was you know like I wasn't I this sounds conceited don't worry I failed at many things but I was always a sort of the sort of student and person who was like oh here's the thing I've never done before I'm sure I'll be great at it right you know it's like (laughs) (laughs) Um, which as it turns out, when it comes to things like skateboarding or cutting my own hair, not true. Um, (laughs) but, uh, it took me a long time, I think as a writer to get really comfortable with just, and I use the word labor a lot, but the labor of writing, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was so, I was just really driven by like how great the thing was going to be at the end. Right. And this sounds dangerously cliche because it's basically like, enjoy the journey. Right. Like it's all about the journey, not the destination, but like kind of right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, the journey is good and the destination is cool, but um, for me, a lot of becoming comfortable as a writer was becoming really comfortable in the, the timeline of things. Um, you know, knowing that like a poem wasn't necessarily going to get finished in like a day or three days. Mm -hmm. Um, Some poems do. Some poems 
kind of come out fully formed because I, I I think that you've actually been thinking about them a lot more than you realize. And then, you know, it's not like the muse visit you do. It's just you, you had already kind of done like a lot of the pre-labor. Um, but a lot of times when you're working on something, it's like if you're project driven, I think there's a, a real danger that you, you push through the thing mm-hmm. just to get project right and as writers i mean if, if we're being totally 100 percent honest we know this we feel this we feel ourselves working the line too hard or we put down this really beautiful image but it's like hollow it doesn't actually mean anything right but it's very pretty it's, it has a lot of alliteration um and i think that's kind of a a tough way to approach writing and i think you can you can get away with it for a while but eventually you know you get to the point where you look back at your own work and you feel nothing. And that's a pretty crummy feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's what I think about process. It also just writing is an exercise in patience. And as an extremely impatient person, it's been really good for <laughs> me to do that. Uh, and also that's why Mastodons are so great. Cause it like totally changes your timeline. Like who cares what you're doing? You're in the Holocene era. Do you know how many things happened before you? <laughs> you know, like, so, yeah. Do you, do you have any advice for, for finding the process and finding patience? Um, oh, I mean, I would love to hear it if I do. <laughs> um, I think, I think that, so one thing I do actually tell my students all the time is, uh, I always tell them though, like as much as you, in, uh, as much as process matters, like do not make, don't make it the act of writing so precious that you can't replicate it easily, right? You know, so, I mean, it's great if it's like, hey, I need to use this type of pen and I need to have, like, this type of light and, like, I have to have this type of decaf green tea. But, you know, I think if you make it too magical like that, then the next time, like, you don't, like, the coffee shop is out of tea, right? Then it's like, well, I'll just go home. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like, you can do this on a plane. You can write a poem on a plane. You know what I mean? So... Um, so I think it's it's really good to like figure out how you train yourself into a little bit of the ritual because it helps kind of get you going, mm-hmm. but never make it so precious that like if one thing goes wrong you can't do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always feel like what we're we're doing when we're writing is we're sort of we're we're Zen meditating without like knowing it or usually you know, and so sometimes yeah. you need like. You know, if, you, if you go to a Zen center, you need like the, the chair and the, and the person ringing the bell and stuff. But then once you actually learn how to do it, you don't you can do it anywhere. And yeah. um, I kind of feel like that's how 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 writing is, because that's what we're doing is we're turning off that conscious mind that's sort of injecting itself constantly and letting those connections be made that are surprising that, that we're not going to realize we're coming before they were. And um, yeah, so it's good to, to find a way to do that without... Um, without the crutches that you you start with, you know, once you can throw away the crutch, you're good. Yeah, you start to you train yourself, right? It's like the superpower that people have. Like I'm really I'm really jealous of people who can who can meditate easily um, because I can do it for like seven sustained minutes, and th- that's with an app, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like an app telling me to do it. Um, but there is something to be said, yeah. Like once you you figure out how to train yourself, then you kind of you just you it's a lot easier to get started right and that's the same thing i mean when you're on a real tear writing and you're 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 clicking away like 
you don't want to look at Twitter, right? It's like you're distracting yourself with Twitter in like the first five minutes because you're like, ah, I'm writing. No, you're not. You're on Twitter, Christina. I know what you're doing. (laughs) But then once once the the stuff starts coming out, it's like, I don't care. I don't care what's happening, right? And then you look up and like a couple hours have passed and that's a really cool feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like, ooh, I like left for a little while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and, uh, and, you know, everyone's busy, right? I mean, I, I love that more than one working mother and writer in my life has been like, you know what? I have kids that totally changes the way I write. I get an hour. Like I am the most efficient in that hour. I am a beast, <laughs> you know, cause like that's my time I, and it's not going to come around again. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, like me just kind of trolling through the landscape and I'm like, I don't know. How do I feel about it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. 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 Um, well you have uh, you sent a poem that's not from the book. Yeah. Uh, somebody's grandmother. Do you want to read that just to make sure we sure. get it in? Still about dead things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a poem about um, a place I used to live in Michigan and we were on the flight path to a hospital. So it's called somebody's grandmother and it appeared in the Atticus review and then it was published in terminal human velocity. Somebody's grandmother handed me a pack of tissues when I broke down in the Atlanta airport. After signing a lease on a house we'd never even walked through, one filled with fleas. And somebody's grandmother sat next to me on that long flight home, told me that some things, her sister dying of cancer, were worth crying over. And some were just shitty. And being grown up means being able to tell the two apart. Then she ordered me a ginger ale. And later that day, I tried to pay it back. I sat next to somebody's grandmother on her first flight in 20 years. It is so different now, she kept saying. I took her elbow, showed her where the bags would fall out. And it was somebody's grandmother that sirens wailed for last night, then went silent at the last light before the hospital. I used to stand under the helicopters that cut their way across our corner of Michigan and be glad that somebody was having a worse day than I. But now I know that each medevac was actually a white hummingbird, deeply engaged in the frantic beating back of death. And now I wish I could still see them. Those little birds full of somebody's grandmothers, those races against the inevitability that await us all. And that was... uh... Uh, somebody's grandmother by christina olson um christina is that a is that from a book or where is that from yeah it's in this book ah terminal human velocity and, yeah. and i don't have a copy of that book what's that about i i, I heard that shackleton was in there and that yeah. there was somebody who jumped out of the empire state building and fell back yeah. into the window yeah so this one came out in 2017 um, the poems probably go like a couple years before that, probably as many as 10 years before that. Um, if you read this book, um, there's, there's, a, you start to see the science coming into the poems, you know, so there's some about, there's a poem, for example, about like horseshoe crab blood and how we use a chemical in it to test our modern medicine. Um, and then as you said, yeah, there's a, there's two poems about the story of Elvita Adams, who is a woman who attempted to kill herself by jumping off the Empire State Building but she only fell one story because the building goes out. Um, and so she didn't die at all. And, and she only broke a hip. Um, yeah. So the book is terminal human velocity, which is, you know, the, the way that you calculate the physics of a body falling, um, which sounds kind of dark. Um, but 
I think it's just kind of one of the things about science and poetry is that it gives us or science in, in life is that it gives us a vocabulary. You know, there's like a almost like a dispassionate vocabulary that you can apply a sort of equation. And as someone who spends a lot of time thinking on the emotional side of things, I really kind of had a good time figuring out what I could take from science that didn't feel quite so emotional all the time. Right. Because at the end of the day we are probably just sacks of meat. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, yeah. So there, yeah. So a lot of the poems have to do with that. And then Ernest Shackleton, who is my, my secret boyfriend. Um, <laughs> So Shackleton, he he tried to find the South Pole, but didn't make it, right? Is that that the right story? Yeah, didn't kill anybody. Like, every other expedition, like, you know, they all died, and Shackleton was deeply heroic. Um, The sled dogs died. They had to shoot them for food. And then a carpenter uh, got three toes amputated, but that was the the greatest loss that they suffered, which for Hmm. 1917 was pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, my family. You, we, had, we to circle back a little bit. You would ask, like, "Oh, what's it like being a poet in a room full of engineers?" My family loved Shackleton, and so that was an early like connection point where we used to sit around Thanksgiving and talk about Shackleton. And then one day, I was like, "Hey, I wrote a couple poems about Shackleton," and everyone was like, "Really? All right, maybe I'll try these poems you speak of." Right. <laughs> So, that's interesting. Yeah. I just watched uh, the Terror about. Did you see that that show yet with? Uh... Oh. It's about um, that Arctic exploration, not Antarctic. Oh, but, uh, like the HMS Terror? And yeah. yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. That expedition was rough. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it imagines what, what had happened. And it's a really cool show. It's got that guy, that British guy who's in everything. You know, oh, he, yeah, was, yeah. he was like Chernobyl in like The Office, and I don't know what his name is, but he was in everything. But it was good. Um, yeah. yeah so, so these explorations i don't mm-hmm. because it's, it, to me it's like the the worst possible thing you could ever do is get on a ship and try to go find like your way through ice so yeah i read about men doing it i'm just like okay <laughs> and, and we're probably opening up you know our lifetime has been a time where we haven't done that but we're going to mars soon i think you know the next 10 20 years um elon musk says he wants to die on mars yeah, uh, and I think he probably will. Um, <laughs> that is also really scary. It, like the, my, my personal hell is everyone's like you're going to Mars, and I'm like I don't. <laughs> I'm not get for three years. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mars is is terrifying. I mean, the, the whole like like if anything happens, you get the bends immediately. That is not cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so, uh, what do you have next? Like, you're you know you don't do projects, but you do process. What what's next in the process? Uh, so I am, it isn't, it's something I think starting to resemble a series of poems about anxiety, um, (laughs) my old friend, um, and they kind of started out as these goofy little poems and then, um, I find it really fun to write them because I, again, it's like this distancing, right? Like a poem asks you to put something into language and, and I think once you put something into language, you've taken a lot of the fear out of it. Not all of it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you create a new fear. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on that. Um, so that will probably be a third collection. And then um, I'm actually working on a book-length lyric essay about the Coney-style hot dog. The Coney-style <laughs> Coney hot dog. What yeah, is... Like, I've, I've been to Coney Island once, but yeah, what is the Coney-style... I don't know if I had a hot dog or not. 
Okay, so so this is a little bit like talking about like barbecue or pizza. So like, please, people on YouTube, like I understand there are regional differences. I've lived in both Ohio and Michigan, um, but it's a it's a type of hot dog that has um, a meat sauce on it. The uninitiated would call it chili. It's not really a chili. Like it's a it's a different type of meat sauce. There's rarely beans in it, um, but it's. I love using food as a lens to think about regionality, right? Like I love the way that we declare our allegiance to certain things totally based through food. And, um, and I love the story of the hot dog, which is, um, this like distinctly American thing. Right. Um, and yeah, so I, I think a lot about hot dogs. I try not to eat a lot of hot dogs, (laughs) but I think about them all the time. (laughs) So if anyone listening has any place they want me to go eat hot dogs, like I'll add it to my list. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's actually, you know, like the, the book is shaping up to be a story about immigration. Right. Mm. Um, and like I said, kind of American regionalism and the stories we tell through food and then um, what it's like to live in really cold parts of the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a hot dog is the only thing that makes you happy sometimes. <laughs> For, for the, the poems on anxiety and sort of the way narrative helps with anxiety, there's a guy who does, I can't remember, I wrote a paper about it or, or a little article for the newspaper about it. Um, what is his name? I can't remember. But there's a guy who does has actually studied the way that um, composing your own narrative relieves anxiety. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, I but I know that we tell ourselves stories in order to live, right? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. But, but he's had like he's had trials where he has a whole well, thing where he has people write um, write the narrative of either their traumatic experience or um, something like that, and then and then it, it works better somehow than both the placebo and both like drugs. Wow. Um, uh, what is his name? I can't remember, but uh, maybe I could send it to you. But it's interesting yeah. research. I read a whole bunch and wrote like a little a little short article about it because I I like to write articles about that. Um, yeah. um, anyway, do you want to um, finish off with one poem? Is there something else you yeah. want to read? Yeah. Um, this is a this is a little bit of a happy poem. <laughs> uh, this is a poem. Um, I didn't send it to you, so I'm sorry. But that's oh, okay. It's a. Uh, it's called Three Month Anniversary, and I wrote it cleverly, or I cleverly tiled it after I've been married for three months. So, Three Month Anniversary. There's nothing in the etiquette guides for a marriage so short, so I wake early on a Saturday. Bring us home Subway. The egg whites, because I want you to live forever, or at least outlast me. Friends keep asking if it feels different, and they don't like the answer. No, not really. Pretty much the same. But what did they think? Bliss. Such bliss. Seriously, I got fired from my job because I couldn't focus on anything but the sheer bliss. Every sneeze starts as a gasp, and then it settles itself down. And really, there are nice little moments. Like the time we picked all the mulberries, our hands murderous with blue juice. Even a bush knows how to be beautiful three weeks a year. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Christine. That was great. Um, yeah. and, and thanks so much for joining us on the Rattlecast. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish, wish we could talk longer. It's a lot of fun. I love, I love yeah. what you write about and what your interests are, so it's really fun. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who's read it. Yeah, yeah. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so that was Christina Olson.
Um, and her book, of course, is, uh, yeah, her book is The Last Mastodon, which came out with the winter issue for anybody who uh, is a subscriber. You, of course, have a copy and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do click the like button and uh, share and all that good stuff. No matter where you're watching this, uh, sharing and liking and uh, giving it four stars, all that stuff really helps because that's the way things work in the digital universe. You have to click on stuff to tell the uh, computer overlords what you actually like because they use that to determine what other people might like. And uh, so if you click the like button, that really helps a lot. If you share and... uh, Uh, see first and uh, turn on notifications or whatever the heck, whatever platform you're watching this on. If you do that, that really helps. So please do that. Uh, Once again, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995, and uh, we're just here for the love of poetry. So do help us out by sharing stuff. Now, next week, we are going to have Susan Brown and her book, Just Living. Susan Brown is in the current issue of Rattle, number 66. She's also in issue number 67 as one of Kim Adonizio's students. Issue number 67 is at the printer right now, and if you're a subscriber, you'll be getting that in just a few weeks. Um, Susan Brown's a great poet. We published her three times now, and it's always really good poems, so I'm looking forward to meeting her. I I assume she's in the Bay Area since she's one of Kim Adonizio's students. And uh, yeah, hope to see you then. And in the meantime, have a great week. Good night.